Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, world-renowned psychologist Professor Richard Ryan talks about why video games are so addictive and why people can't wait for the weekend. First, I'd like to thank uh, Martin for not embarrassing me. He has numbers of stories that he could use to do so, and he chose not to do so. Um, I would like to thank uh, everybody who organized tonight's talk, particularly Sarah. Uh, you did a great job of organizing this tonight, and uh, James, who's uh, housed me this year, and uh, particularly Martin, who's been uh, not only a colleague and uh, collaborator this year, but also a very good friend as I've lived here in Bath this year. Um, as I talk tonight, I want to uh, just first begin by uh, saying that all of the work that I do has always been deeply collaborative. I really, uh, I'm not very good at working by myself, so I always find colleagues with whom I can work and with whom I can share ideas. And some of the work I'm going to talk about tonight, I mentioned uh, some of the uh, co-authors uh, here in this slide. But again, I want to particularly point out uh, Martin here, who uh, has been really, uh, really um, instrumental this year in some of the work that I've been doing here in the UK on physical activity. So I'm a little bit nervous tonight in talking before you. I'm always nervous before a talk, but I'm particularly nervous tonight because uh, my wife is in the audience, and usually <laughs> I don't allow her to come to any of my talks because, uh, I don't know, she just makes me more nervous than other people. But, so I'm only going to look at one side of this auditorium tonight. Uh, so, um, anyway, what I want to talk about tonight is self-determination theory in a kind of broad sense. This is a public lecture, and I know that there are both scientists in the room and then some just interested parties, and so I'm going to try and walk a line of both presenting some research and also giving some general ideas about issues of motivation uh, that I think are pertinent to everybody. And uh, in self-determination theory, uh, as Martin said, it's abbreviated STT rather than STD because in the U.S. that has other meanings, but uh, in STT we have a lot of different things that we've done research on over the years. We started with work on a phenomena called intrinsic motivation, which I'll speak about which is the natural propensity of uh, primates to really explore their environment and curiously inspect the things around them and to be acquisitive epistemically. And uh, from intrinsic motivation phenomena, we moved on to study extrinsic motivation and how people internalize values from their environment and really make them their own and therefore persist at them over time. This work on internalization then really led us to uh, ask some other questions about what's universal about human motives and what's culturally specific. And also some of the ingredients that I hope to talk about tonight about universally, what's involved in people's well-being? What is it that makes people happy and thriving versus the things that lead them uh, to, uh, to be less robust and, uh, and vital in what they do? And part of that's going to involve some discussions of uh, the life goals that we pursue and which ones of those actually fulfill the kinds of psychological needs that would have us be well. Uh, there's a lot of things I won't be able to talk about tonight, uh, probably not any of the work that we do on energy and vitality or mindfulness. Uh, particularly a lot of my recent work is really on dual process theory, which is uh, how we coordinate our non-conscious and uh, conscious uh, motives and attitudes, uh, and some work on nature that we won't be able to really cover uh, this evening. Uh, the reason for doing motivation research in the first place is really because it has implications for human practice. And so what I hope to do tonight is show how basic research in human motivation will also have an impact on fields like psychotherapy, uh, medicine and healthcare practice, uh, sport, exercise, and uh, issues in organizational behavior and work performance for people as well. 
um, even implications for things like why people play video games uh, or why we pursue things in natural environments. So, because there's so much work that's going on in SDT today, there's a, there's a lot of researchers around the world who do work. I recognize a few of them here in the room. Uh, the best I can do is to give kind of a bird's eye view or an overview of the work that we do in this field. And uh, here's a little bird's eye view of, of Bath, a city I've come to appreciate quite a bit since we've been living here. Uh, we live somewhere up around there right now. It's a really nice place to be living. Uh, but as you can see from this bird's eye view, one wouldn't know Bath very well from really this perspective, and uh, that may be true by the end of this talk. Um, I want to just begin with the general concept that's really at the center of all of the work we do, which is the concept of motivation. Everybody in this room knows what the term motivation means. It really means to be moved into action. But uh, I think we also all know that when we're motivated to do something, there are very different forces that can be pressing on us to do uh, that action. We can be moved into action by forces that are external and coercive, and we can be moved into action by inspiration and by value and by uh, interest. And so most of the work that we do is really interested in uh, the forces that are moving people into action and the different qualities of behavior that are the resultant of those different forces acting on them. Now really, when I was growing up in psychology, particularly uh, you know, Martin mentioned how many, the, how many things I've done. Really, that's just correlated with age. The older you get, the more things that you've actually done uh, in life. Uh, but when I was growing up in psychology, the dominant perspective on motivation was really one about rewards and punishments being the principal things that drive human behavior. I'll never minimize the power of rewards to uh, incite behavior or the power of punishments to drive people to do things. But it's a pretty limited idea about what moves people to action. Because in fact, it's kind of based on a classical model in which the organism that's being motivated is trapped in a cage in some way. And therefore, the people who can motivate it have control over its environment in a pretty complete way. This is not a really accurate description of most human beings. Most human beings aren't in an environment that can be con completely controlled by uh, the experimenter or by the people around them. That's not that it's not always true. Some of us are in smaller cages, some of us in bigger ones. But uh, it's not a great view of really what our environment is. And I think that's led to a real change in motivation studies, not just SDT, but all the different paradigms in motivation in recent years. Really a Copernican turn in that in the sense of instead of thinking about the external environment as the source of motivation, we're much more concerned with what's going on inside the organism that's uh, leading an organism to make the choices and the movements and the actions that it makes. Because people do have choices. We live in open environments and when we don't like the cage we're in, we often go to a new one. And so the issue in motivation is really not so much about how we can control people from the outside, but can we understand a little more about the paths that people choose to take and what sustains them on that path and what will make them thrive as they engage in the activities that they engage. So the new look in motivation studies is really about goals and volition. And I think this is what we're uh, interested in studying quite a bit in self-determination theory. It's on the multiple ways we can both facilitate volition in people, the voluntary doing of things, both through the promotion of intrinsic motivation or their interest in the activity, or through the promotion of value or the real desire and willingness to do something because you see the importance of the ends that the behavior would be aimed at. 
And there's also the study of the multiple ways in which we undermine this in people, sometimes unwittingly, why it is that we can take a natural interest like learning in school children who come to school so curious and so desirous to learn and somehow undermine or take away that interest over the years that they're uh, in that environment. So in the bird's eye view of self-determination theory I want to offer tonight, I'm going to give you the broadest uh, paintbrush view of it right now, which is that we see that there are some fundamental psychological needs that are universal. Universal in the sense that everybody uh, has these needs and when these needs are being fulfilled or supported in the environment, then people show their most optimal and high quality motivation, their strongest sense of volition, and as we'll see tonight, they'll also show their uh, most thriving or their highest well-being. Now I'm going to use the word need here in a very specific way because in the English language, and I know I'm not speaking English tonight, I'm speaking American, but bear with me. Uh, in the English language, uh, the term need gets used in very different ways. Sometimes we use the term need when we really just mean a strong desire. So, you know, when I say I need a second Mercedes or I need a third vacation home, we know that this is not a basic need, this is not something that's an essential for me. I actually don't have any of those things, but uh, uh, when one says it that way, you're really talking about desire. And I don't mean the term need in the sense of desire, I mean it in the terms of an essential thing. So, you know, we say a plant has a need for sunlight, and uh, this is an objective statement, because if we deprive it of sunlight, we see it wither. Well, if we say a plant needs water, we can uh, say that's an objective statement because when we deprive it of water we see it deteriorate or we see degradation in that uh, organic system. And in the same way I want to use that term need with respect to the psychological system of human beings. When there are certain goods or fulfillments that they don't have in their development or in their social environment we'll see the same kind of withering and deterioration in their optimal functioning. To use the term in this sense also means that the way I'm going to use the term need means that these things are natural to people. They're in their psychological design, their evolved nature. And as a result of that, they're not culturally acquired. And in fact, there are some cultures that, uh, at least where we explore, some of the things that supply basic needs may not even be valued. Now, I'm a clinic clinical psychologist. Uh, part of my stock and trade is to see patients. I have many patients who say things to me like, I don't need relationships in my life. And I believe that they mean that as a statement of they desire no more, and usually because they've had some hazards in the relationships they've experienced in the past. They've had hurt or threat or deprivation in relationships, and so they're saying, I don't want to encounter that again. But nonetheless, if they don't have relationships in their life that are deep and uh, fulfilling, they, they don't show thriving as well. So it's not about whether somebody consciously desires these things, when they're deprived of people, uh, they will show some degradation. Similarly, recently we've been doing some studies in uh, uh, Israel and uh, I had the opportunity, the privilege really, to interview uh, Bedouin women about various things and sometimes Bedouin women will say, I don't need any choice and I don't need any freedom and I don't need to have any control in my life. Uh, and nonetheless, we will show that there are some psychological costs when those things are deprived of those individuals. So, we think these needs are universal rather than culturally specific. They're also cross-developmental. I'll provide some evidence for that. And they don't need to be consciously valued to have importance for the individual. Now, just a few quick definitions. When we use the term relatedness, we really mean the sense of being cared for, or a sense of belonging, uh, a sense of significance within your social community. 
So uh, in a workplace or in a school or a classroom or a family system, relatedness means that you feel like you belong there and that you're cared about in that context. Competence is the sense of effectiveness that you can have an impact on the important things in your environment or feel efficacy. Both of these ideas of competence needs and uh, relatedness needs, even when people don't use the term need in psychology, are less controversial than the third need in our theory, which is the need for autonomy. Because theories like self-efficacy theory or attachment theory seem to stress uh, these bottom two needs with, uh, with some uh, um, strength. And uh, so I'll probably focus more tonight on the top need here, which is the need for uh, autonomy. And we use the term autonomy in a way that I think is consistent with the major philosophical perspectives on autonomy, which is that autonomy is when you're acting in accord with your own abiding values and interests. It means that you concur with your own actions. The opposite of autonomy is to be controlled or to experience heteronomy. It is not to be dependent. In fact, um, I'm going to skip ahead here, just a uh, slide here. Autonomy is not independence at all. A person can be fully dependent and also autonomous. When I go to my physician and I'm ill and I say to her, please help me, I'm ill, I'm being dependent and I'm being volitionally or autonomously dependent in that moment. When uh, our teenagers used to come to us for guidance or support and say, you know, Dad, could you help me with something? They're being dependent, but they're being volitionally dependent. But people can also be volitionally or autonomously independent when they say, I would like to do this myself, or I would like to uh, not uh, depend on somebody else for the supplication of needs. Uh, they, so uh, we really think of independence and autonomy as orthogonal or independent dimensions. You can be uh, autonomously dependent or independent, or you can be forced into dependence or independence in different situations. And there are different costs when that happens. Autonomy is also not some kind of uh, free will in a, uh, a Cartesian sense. We, we can uh, have autonomy, and it takes a certain form in the brain. I'll take a look at some of that. Both autonomous behavior and motivation and control behavior and motivation have different topographies in terms of how they appear in terms of neuropsychological processes. And it's also the case that to be autonomous doesn't mean that you don't uh, follow external commands. So when a, I drive down the street and a police person steps into the middle of the road and says stop, to the extent that I believe in the legitimacy of traffic laws and the fact that they provide safety for all of us, I willingly stop. Similarly, if I'm a very dedicated soldier and I believe in the legitimacy and the importance of following commands, I can autonomously follow the commands of my leader. In fact, we did studies in the Israeli army looking at autonomous following of leadership among those people who move into the service there and they turn out to be much better soldiers because they believe in the legitimacy of commands. And of course, these things just follow from really all the philosophical analyses of the term autonomy that really are in very different traditions. My own uh, early upbringing was in uh, continental philosophy, Husserlian philosophy, and so my original ideas on autonomy really came from the work of Alexander Fonder and later Paul Ricoeur and others. But this same idea about autonomy being the reflective endorsement of that which we do is also present in analytical philosophies from Harry Frankfurt onto Dworkin, and in my favorite works uh, that are modern, which is really the feminist philosophy, analytic philosophy of Marilyn Friedman and others. 
It's even in philosophies in the, the East where some people say autonomy is not an important idea, but Confucian analytics make clear that self-cultivation really involves having your head match your heart even in the following of traditions. So, I want to talk about autonomy, but I want to talk about its manifestations in concrete human behavior. And I'm going to begin where we began our studies, which is in the phenomena of intrinsic motivation. Excuse me for a second. I'm drinking because I'm nervous. My wife's here. <laughs> Sorry, dear, I keep mentioning that. Um, so, what is intrinsic motivation? Intrinsic motivation is when we do something because of the inherent enjoyment in the activities. The term intrinsic motivation really comes from primate studies. It was coined by Harry Harlow as he was observing uh, primates in his laboratory, curiously investigating puzzles and mechanical things that he would give them. But it's something that's really obvious and really well endowed in human beings. We can't watch children without seeing that they love exploration and play. In fact, the prototype of intrinsic motivation is children's play. And the reason for we say that is because children don't play because they get rewards. Children don't play because they get praised for it. Children play because the activities are fun themselves. Indeed, as I'll show you, if you start to reward a child for playing, that's the quickest way to kill their enjoyment of their play. So this child here is not uh, doing something because playing with sand will ultimately build his motor skills or in some way will have some biological benefits to him. It does. There's a lot of evidence that intrinsic motivation in fact has a great deal to do with the scaffolding of the neuropsychological development of children. But nonetheless, children don't do it for that reason. They do it because it's fun. Now, children are not the only people who play. Uh, we all play. Sports is a big part of, for most of us, is intrinsically motivated. Few of us are getting the rewards or benefits or trophies from sports. We play because it's fun. Uh, and here's a picture of Miriam and me uh, with a puzzle. Uh, but actually, you know, all through the ages, we're all engaged in play. And this is really a source of revitalization, continued cognitive activity, and health for all of us. So intrinsic motivation plays a big role in our lives. And the question is, what sustains it? We go back to self-determination theory's bird's eye view. We say intrinsic motivation is based upon the uh, basic psychological needs. And primarily, it's based on two basic psychological needs. The needs for competence. So we're most intrinsically motivated when we can engage in an environment and come away feeling like we've had an impact or we're effective. If we're going to have fun building with blocks, the blocks need to stay up once in a while. If we're going to have fun in a video game, it's because we have to have some success in that game. If we're going to have fun in a sport like skiing, it's because we're not falling every other second. You have to feel some effectiveness and competence and some positive feedback in order to be intrinsically motivated. But also, to be intrinsically motivated, you also need to feel autonomy, which is you need to feel initiative and in that the behavior is in some way emanating from yourself. And forces that in some way will lead you to believe that your behavior is being brought about, caused, or coerced by people outside of you will undermine your intrinsic motivation and uh, diminish it uh, in a robust way. Relatedness also plays a role in intrinsic motivation because children don't play in environments where they feel insecure. For instance, if there's low security of attachment or people are being distant or cold to them uh, because there they're being vigilant and they're unable to free up their cognitive resources to engage in this activity. Now, in my uh, early career and that of Ed DC and a number of our other colleagues at Rochester, we used to do a lot of experiments to show the importance of these psychological needs to intrinsic motivation. And our experiments typically had the following form, which is 
We'd bring people into a laboratory setting and give them something really fun or enjoyable to do that we had pre-tested to be fun or enjoyable like a puzzle or a visual spatial task or something that people enjoy engaging in. And then we would do one, we'd put them in different conditions. For instance, we might uh, put them under, uh, under pressure to achieve certain outcomes, to get certain scores or leave them in an absence of pressure. We found that when you put them on pressure toward outcomes, they would lose interest in the activity. And how did we know that? Because then what we would do is when the experiment was over, we'd say this experiment's done, but then we would leave people with a variety of tasks to do it under no demands to do anything. And we would surreptitiously observe what they would turn to, what they would spontaneously engage in. And we would use the behavioral measure of what they would do as the measure of intrinsic motivation. We call this the free choice paradigm. And using the free choice paradigm, we were able to show that putting people under pressure toward outcomes or threatening them with punishments for uh, performance or for engaging in the activity or imposing goals or putting deadlines on them or surveilling them even closely, even just coming up and watching what James is doing here really closely has him feeling like I'm in some way controlling his activity and he starts to lose interest in the activity itself because there's some shift that happens in his psychology. He starts to think that his behavior is being controlled from the outside. And in contrast with that, uh, absence of pressure, giving people choice about how they go about doing something, or choice over the goals that they have, or focusing on the inherent properties or interest value of a task, all these things enhanced intrinsic motivation. Similarly, when you give people positive competence feedback, that enhances their intrinsic motivation, but when you give them negative feedback or challenges that are too difficult, it undermines their intrinsic motivation for that domain of activity. And putting them in environments that are cold undermines, putting them in environments that are warm uh, enhances. Now probably the most controversial work that we did in those early years was to show something that was an anathema to many behaviorists, although since I'm a big fan of operant theory myself and believe in many of its tenets, I don't think it's really contradictory, but many behaviorists have taken it to be so, which is the undermining effect of rewards on intrinsic motivation. We found that when you reward people for doing a task that's interesting to them in the first place, they're very excited by the rewards. They may do more of it even during a reward period. But then when the rewards are no longer present, not only does the, is there an extinction period, but they lose the original interest that they had in the activity. So that there's an undermining of the motivation that was already there. Now, this has been very controversial. There's been many uh, studies, battles, debates, meta-analyses on it. And I won't spend a lot of time on this tonight. I really think the definitive debate uh, was uh, presented in Psychological Bulletin where everybody got to say their piece in this uh, after several uh, uh, previous meta-analyses. I just want to highlight a couple things that show why, uh, what circumstances it is that rewards undermine. In general, if people are doing an interesting task and you reward them with it, uh, anything to do it, when I say, you know, if Martin is playing basketball and I say, hey, I'll give you five dollars for uh, every time you come out here and play basketball, uh, that would be a rewarding him for an intrinsically motivating activity. And you can see here that in general, if you average across every kind of reward, it has a small negative effect on intrinsic motivation. The small negative effect is because there are many different kinds of rewards. Even by our theory, not all rewards lead people to feel controlled. Some rewards actually lead people to feel uh, more competent at what they're doing. 
So if you look though at tangible rewards, the D here grows a little bit because when you give people something tangible for doing something, they typically think, oh, you're the one who wants me to do it and now I'm doing it for you. So when the teacher rewards the child for learning with a tangible reward, this now has the child thinking, oh, I'm doing something the teacher wants me to do. And this takes away from the sense that they want to do it. On the other hand, uh, what uh, some of our behaviorist colleagues call verbal rewards, not only don't show an undermining effect, they show a positive effect. Because a verbal reward is what we, in our theory, call praise. If I praise people for their competence at doing something, it typically enhances because it makes them feel more competent. It's enhancing the competence need and it's not always undermining the autonomy need. But I do want to note here, experiments with children, uh, the seven that had been done by 1999, there's a number more now, they don't show any positive effect of praise on children. And why is that? Because so many times when we're praising children, we're really controlling them. We say, oh, you did a really good job on that. And we, what we mean by that is we want you to do more of that same thing. And children get this. They understand that we're using praise to control them. College students, on the other hand, don't understand that at all. Uh, and uh, so they're, they're strongly enhanced by, by this form of uh, praise. Again, you can see unexpected rewards because they're not controlling your behavior, have no undermining effect. But it's when you say, I'm going to give you this for doing that, the expected reward that undermining typically happens. And so on down the line, if you look at the structure of rewards, the more the reward is used in a way to control the behavior of the person externally, the more it undermines their interest in that activity. And now, they're going to be only likely to do that as long as you maintain the rewards in their environment. And as soon as you stop, they'll be doing it less than they would have been doing if you had never rewarded them at all. So that's the undermining effect of rewards. All of those studies were done where people got the rewards. In all of those experiments that, the, that are the big debate in the, this literature, people get the rewards. They're told, oh yeah, you succeeded at that and here's the reward. But what I want to point out is when we're giving out rewards in real world settings, like in a classroom uh, where there's a set of people doing an activity, and then I go up to this gentleman here, and let's say his name is Johnny. I say, oh Johnny, you did the best in the class on this. Here's your gold star. All the other people in the room are not getting the reward. So there's a double message going on. Not only am I controlling Johnny's behavior, but I'm also conveying a message to all the others that they're not as competent as Johnny. And I just want to point out here, when we look at situations where participants and studies get less than the maximal reward, this is a huge D. This is now really moving up to a very large effect size. And when you don't get a reward at all in a context where rewards are being given, it's a very negative effect. And I ask you next time you're at an awards ceremony in a high school or in a, a place like that, not just to look at the people who are getting rewards and how they're beaming at the moment with their feelings of competence, but look at the rest of the audience and the parents of the children and the rest of the audience especially, and look at the undermining effect that's going on in that moment. We sometimes unwittingly are diminishing feelings of competence in other people when we think we're doing something to encourage more motivation. Now, there's lots of different ways of showing this. Uh, uh, last week, we had uh, Ko Murayama here in Bath, and uh, we actually took him to the spa here in Bath. And uh, uh, he was, he's a really uh, just a exciting and creative young researcher. And he wanted to use uh, some fMRI techniques to show the undermining effect of intrinsic motivation uh, in a magnet. Uh, this has been hard because it's hard to design a really interesting task that you can do in a magnet uh, for any of you who have ever been in one of these fMRI. Uh, machines, but nonetheless he came up with an interesting one. It was a reaction time task 
where you uh, took a stopwatch and you were trying to get it to stop as accurately as you could at a particular moment. So a kind of competence challenge for people. And uh, I'm just going to show you a couple of the different areas that he was looking at. But this is the bilateral striatum, which is an area that would typically be a place where we would see a detection for rewards and for pleasure. Um, and you can see here in, uh, in this graph that uh, in session one here where they're doing the task, uh, here's the reward group. They're, they're really, um, this is on their success trials, by the way. When they succeed and they're getting a reward, there's a lot of activation going on in the striatum as we typically expect. But there's also activation going on there for the non-rewarded group. They're finding pleasure when they succeed, even though there's no extrinsic rewards being given to them. What's interesting is subsequently it has them doing that same task now later in the magnet. And uh, this is after the reward period is over. And you can see here that the no reward group is still interested, still finding pleasure in this activity. But here's the reward group with very little activation. That's this cell right over here. Um, similarly, uh, when he looks at the lateral, right, uh, lateral prefrontal cortex here, an area uh, which would typically be associated with cognitive engagement in a task, you can see here that during the first part of the session where the reward's going on, the reward group is really cognitively engaged, particularly on success trials. The, uh, the no reward group, though, is also cognitively engaged and activated. But look what happens after the reward period. Not only uh, is the control group still cognitively engaged in this activity, but the rewarded group, they're not being punished here at all. They're just not being given the rewards that they had been given before. They're not activated at all. So again, that's just a different way of showing this, but I want to show some concrete reasons why this is important in practice. Uh, long ago, when we were first doing our studies, we were interested in the way teachers use rewards and punishments in classrooms and how they motivate students under different circumstances. One of our very earliest studies and this is while I still was deciding whether I wanted to be a researcher or not. We were doing a, a study in, for, of all fourth, fifth, and sixth graders in a local, uh, local public school system outside of Rochester. And in the summertime, before teachers saw any of their students and knew even who they were, they hadn't been assigned to their classrooms that, we gave them a, a, a survey slash interview about how they would go about motivating students who were problem students or how they would uh, motivate students when they did well. And we classified teachers who would uh, motivate students through the use of rewards and punishment as controlling. And we classified teachers who, when they came across a problem with students, would say, well, you know, I don't know if, if Johnny was listless and uninvolved. I'm sorry, I'm going to keep picking on you tonight because you're sitting right here. But uh, if Johnny were listless and uninvolved in the classroom, I wouldn't start by punishing him or keeping him in for recess. I'd try and find out what's going on with Johnny. Why is he unmotivated? I want to get inside the internal frame of reference of Johnny to help motivate him. We called this autonomy supportive. And then we just followed longitudinally the kids in their classroom. I'm not going to show you the whole longitudinal study. This is just the average correlations across the year. So this is the teacher's own report of his or her style in the classroom on a continuum from autonomy support to control. And the more, contro the more controlling teachers were in the classroom, the more controlling their philosophy was, the less curious kids were for their schoolwork the less independently they went about schoolwork, the less they would do anything unless they were told to do it. And the less they uh, also preferred challenge. Whereas in an autonomy supportive classroom, they wanted harder problems, they were more curious, and they were more independent in the way they went about their work. And one thing that I think impressed me as a young clinical psychologist was this bottom thing. I was doing play therapy with children at the time in one hour a week, thinking, am I having any impact on children at all? 
but by four or five weeks into the school year, teachers who were controlling were having a strong negative effect on the global self-worth of children, and teachers who were autonomy supporting were raising the self-esteem of kids in their classroom. And subsequently, we've done lots of longitudinal studies showing the spread of effect as a function of the teacher style in a classroom. And any of you who've had a child who's gone through different classrooms could see this in your own children when they get demotivated in a controlling environment or they get excited and inspired in a more supportive one. Uh, just we, we, this work, has, there's been lots of these studies done. This is just a more recent one that was done in uh, South Korea uh, in a discussion about whether autonomy mattered in South Korean students. And this was led by Young Shim Yang uh, at uh, Inhai University. And here I'm just going to focus on the intrinsic motivation part here, which is uh, autonomy support in the classroom versus controlling behavior supported the autonomy of students. And this was strongly related to students' uh, intrinsic motivation. This is a high school sample uh, and as, as well as their competence. In fact, this is a worldwide phenomenon. Children are pretty much the same all over the place. But I would say it's not just children. We do the same things in workplaces. When we look at controlling managers, we see how they have an impact on their workers that demotivates. And when we look at autonomy supportive ones, we see how they inspire, lead to satisfaction, lead to greater engagement. And I'll show some data on that subsequently. Intrinsic motivation is such a cool phenomenon. It's all over the place. And one place that really shows up is in video games. We look across our culture, and now we find all kinds of people spending time on video games. In fact, uh, in the United States, uh, right now, the average uh, and it's not just children anymore. The average person who is below age 40 is spending at least three uh, hours, I'm sorry, at least 15 hours a week playing video games. This is how popular video games are in our culture. Everything from Angry Birds to uh, uh, World of Warcraft, the, what I've got depicted here. And these things are largely intrinsically motivated. Very few people get rewards for playing video games. Uh, most of us get punished for playing them a lot. Uh, when I started uh, doing research on this, I would play video games, and I would be up really late at night. And my wife, who's not in this room right now, would sometimes come up and yell up the stairs, uh, you know, it's really late now. And I'd say, I'm doing research, dear. Because most of the time, nobody's rewarding you for doing these things. They're highly intrinsically motivated activities. Um, and why is that? Because designers of video games have built in strong opportunities for competence building or feelings of competence and strong opportunities for feelings of autonomy and feelings of relatedness in these games. And uh, we, re we recently wrote a book, so this is shameless advertising for a pop book on this uh, matter. But this is just one study I want to show you on. It's an eight-month longitudinal study. We sample people who are playing a video game, and we ask them at the beginning of an eight-month uh, period of the study, how much do you enjoy the game, and how much fun was it? And of course, you'd think that'd be a big predictor of uh, how much you're playing eight months later, and it is on a correlational level. We also asked specifically about autonomy and competence satisfactions that they were getting in the game and uh, relatedness satisfactions, because this was a massive multiplayer online game, which means you can group with other people. And when you let these things compete against each other in a multiple regression, you see really the fun of the game is being carried by the fact that you can feel this growth in competence, you can level up, and you can feel a lot of freedom, choice about the things you're doing, the environments you explore in the game, and you can connect with people that you want to. And video game designers know this very well, and that's why they've been able to be so successful at getting us engaged in these otherwise socially useless activities of video games. Um, well, sometimes socially useless, because as we're seeing, gamification is a way of 
now bringing these same motivational tools to bear on things that we also think to have social importance like health or um, other issues like that that I'll get to. Um, so my just general point here then is that intrinsic motivation is driven by basic psychological need satisfaction and it's a really important part of human activity. And sometimes we unwittingly undermine this very important and vital part of the human spirit even as we're trying to promote it by the use of rewards and other external incentives to do it. But I want to get to another big part of uh, motivation, which is not intrinsic motivation, that's where we really started, but extrinsic motivation, which is not when we're doing something because it's inherently enjoyable, but we're doing something because there's some outcome that we want from the activity. Uh, in the terms of uh, behavioral psychology, Extrinsic motivation is all instrumental behavior. All instrumental behavior. We're doing something as an instrument to get to another outcome. Extrinsic motivation is really, really important in our lives. And the older we get, the more we're engaged in extrinsically motivated activities as opposed to intrinsically motivated activities. Maybe part of the sad part of uh, maturation is we move away from play and we move toward things of social importance. But again, when we think about extrinsic motivation, uh, at least in the early days of work in this, people often would cast extrinsic motivation as if it was a bad partner to intrinsic motivation, when in fact, extrinsic motivation can be of very varied sorts. I can be extrinsically motivated to do something because, uh, you know, my department chair says if you don't do this, your pay will be docked at the end of the year. So I'm instrumentally going to do it uh, for fear of the punishment I might suffer. That's extrinsic motivation. Or uh, maybe she would say, I'll give you a big bonus if you do this, and then I'd be extrinsically motivated to get the reward. But sometimes you're extrinsically motivated, not, again, the behavior may not be fun, but because you really value the outcome. If I care about a social cause in the world, if I want to go out and collect money for that cause, even though I can't think of anything less intrinsically motivating than begging for money from my neighbors, I might go out and do that quite volitionally and quite willingly because of the importance and value I place in that external outcome that, recruit, that comes about from my activity. So in self-determination theory, when we started to develop a, the thinking about extrinsic motivation, we thought there's really a continuum underlying extrinsic motivation that goes from very heteronymous, very controlled activity to very autonomous uh, or very willing and volitional activity all of which can be extrinsically motivated. So at the heteronymous end of this is what we call external regulation. That's when you're doing something because of the rewards and punishment that somebody else is dangling around you that's now controlling your behavior. So a child could be doing their homework, for instance, because if they don't do it, they would get punished, or when they do do it, they get the gold star or they get the reward for it. That's external regulation. It's very motivating in the sense of if you have strong enough rewards and punishments, you can pretty much get people to do anything. The problem with external regulation is not that it's not powerful. 40, 50 years of behavioral studies have shown just how powerful it is. The problem is it has very poor maintenance and transfer. Unless you continue to have the whip or the carrot in front of the person, the behavior doesn't persist. So in treatment studies, for instance, when you use strong rewards and punishment to get people to do something, that only lasts as long as you're still in control of their environment. So it doesn't get internalized, and that's the issue. It's not that it's not powerful or potent. Somewhat more, less heteronymous or more autonomous is the idea of introjection, also a very powerful part of human behavior and motivation. 
interjections when we sort of internalized these external regulators, but we'd now reward and punish ourselves in accord with our action. So when I'm doing what I should do, and I'll feel guilty if I don't do it, and I'll feel pride and self-aggrandizement when I do, this is interjection. The student who needs to get the A to feel good about themselves, or needs to uh, accomplish something or else they will feel guilty or perform because they'll be ashamed in front of their parents if they don't do well. These are all interjected behaviors. And again, we all know just how powerful a motive this can be. Um, at the same time, as uh, I think I'll show evidence, it's an unstable motive and it leads to unreliable persistence over time because there's often ways in which we can wall ourselves off from our own internal rewards and punishments or escape from them in very different ways. And it doesn't seem to have a, a sticking power over time as a primary way of motivating activity. Still more autonomous is when we identify with the value of an outcome. So this is when we consciously value an activity. So if I do my homework, not just because I'm afraid of punishment or because I'll feel guilty if I don't, but rather because I actually think homework is valuable for learning and helps me get new skills, a conscious thought. This is identification. That means I'm willingly doing my homework. I may not find it fun, but I do it willingly in a sport activity. I may practice certain moves, uh, not because they're fun, but because I know they're fundamental to my gaining skills. This would be identification. And still most uh, autonomous in this uh, continuum of extrinsic motivation is what we call integration. And this is when your identifications even fit together so that you can wholeheartedly be behind what you're doing. You're not divided in your activity, you're fully valuing it. Now I said this is a continuum and there's lots of different ways we've shown psychometrically that this is a continuum when you measure all these motives in somebody. Typically we have multiple motives. A kid who's doing their homework might do it both because they're interjected and they value it, for instance, but we measure multiple motives. Uh, but we also show that they lie along a continuum of autonomy uh, different ways of showing that, but the simplest way of showing it is what we call a simplex model. If you just array the uh, different motives, this is, a, this is a, a, the question, why do you do your homework uh, for three different elementary school samples? Uh, some kids uh, will answer that question of, they think uh, that uh, they do homework because they'll get punished if they don't or they get rewards when they do. Uh, some kids do it because they think they should. Uh, some kids do it because they think they, it's valuable. And there's a few strange children who think homework is fun. Um, so when you look at that and you array them in order here, you can see that along the diagonal, there, there's a high correlation. In any direction you move off the diagonal, it shrinks in correlation. And uh, Gutman, uh, a very uh, renowned statistician, uh, once called this a quasi-simplex model. And we expect the quasi-simplex model wherever we measure people's motivation. And it turns up in all domains, in all ages, uh, just about, there's one domain it doesn't turn up in, that's drug addiction, but I won't go into the specifics why. But in almost every other, well, in every other domain we've studied, you get a simplex model. Uh, here's three very different kinds of uh, student samples, our urban poor, our rural poor, and our suburban wealthy uh, in our area of Rochester, New York, all showing a simplex model uh, behind it. This is uh, Japanese school children, uh, Yamauchi and Tanaka, uh, back in the 90s, did their own indigenous measure uh, of, uh, of our uh, ideas about motivation and they found the same simplex model in Japanese elementary school children uh, showing the same pattern. And I'm just going to stick with their data for a minute. The more autonomous you are in your motives, uh, the better 
uh, the quality of your behavior. So we see here in elementary, in the Japanese elementary school uh, children, work avoidance here. Work avoidance is positively correlated with external regulation. It's uh, uh, not at all correlated with interjection. You can see it's just negative and now it begins even more negative. The more autonomous the form of motivation, the less work avoidance. Learning orientation, going up with more autonomy. Notice performance orientation. This is your motivation to do better than others. Most highly correlated with interjection. And then in terms of how they process material, deep processing of the material in class, more correlated with autonomous motives, superficial processing more correlated with uh, external motives. In U.S. classrooms, we find that classroom attitudes, even controlling for uh, Stanford achievement test scores or other measures of ability, are really a function to some degree of autonomy. So in this, we're showing that in a classroom environment, uh, here, this is uh, elementary school, these are sixth graders. Uh, these sixth graders are more persistent, curious, more participating, less anxiety, less boredom and less anger. The more autonomously motivated they are, even controlling for their ability, and they get higher grades as a function of autonomy, even controlling for, again, their achievement test scores in school. In fact, we can look at, we do a lot of work where we look at classroom to classroom variation in interest as a function of autonomy and control in that day from a particular teacher and show the fluctuation to be systematic. We just did that in some uh, German classrooms. Just to move to another domain, this is uh, data that comes from uh, the renowned psychologist Martin Standage of the University of Bath. Uh, but actually it's, it's really interesting and cool data. You can see he was measuring people's um, motivations for exercise, really asking why would you do physical activity? Why would you exercise during the week? And he and his group uh, used uh, the intrinsic identified, interjected and external items. And you can see in the circle here they get that same simplex pattern that I uh, say is pretty invariant across settings. And then they had people wearing a device called an ActaHeart, which is a pretty accurate measure of how much physical activity they do. And the interest is in whether they were doing uh, real bouts of exercise that would satisfy the requirements of, say, the uh, American uh, uh, College of Sport Medicine or other groups that say you need certain intensity of activity in order to be healthy. And this is just the simple correlations of the various motives for engaging in activity and the degree to which they actually did uh, meet these guidelines across the period of time that they were wearing the ActaHeart. You can see here that autonomously motivated uh, exercisers are the ones who are actually engaged in activity. In control motivation, my doctor told me I should, uh, my wife makes me, uh, I think it's uh, good for me in some way uh, that might be associated with rewards not reliably associated with actually increased exercise. Just to move to another domain, we do a lot of work in the healthcare domain. And in the healthcare domain, you know, our doctors often tell us what to do. Our healthcare professionals give us advice. And the sad thing is, at least in America, I don't know the data here in the UK, people don't do what their doctors tell them to do. In fact, if a, you get a prescription from a physician about 40% of the time in the U.S. do people actually act accurately carry out the prescription. So if you're told to take certain pills, people take them at the wrong time or in the wrong amounts or they stop the pills before uh, the, the regimen is done, uh, for instance with antibiotics and other things. So in, uh, just in one study, Gail Roden and uh, Jeff Williams and Wendy Grolnick and, and myself and uh, Ed Deasy did a study 
in a North Carolina sample, uh, nothing wrong with North Carolina, it's the same as the rest of the country. Uh, in North Carolina, these were people, this is about 100 people who had a chronic <laughs> illness. And their physician prescribed them to take an oral medication that would have been pretty easy to take. You take uh, two pills a day, basically, for this chronic, uh, that, was the, that was the typical regimen that this group had to do. And uh, so after the prescription we had, uh, after they came out of the prescription meeting, they rated uh, the autonomy, supportiveness versus controlling style of their physician. But we also asked them, why, would, why are you taking the medication in accord with our mode of uh, uh, taxonomy? And then without, their, without telling them ahead of time, about two days after they got the prescription, we called them on the phone. We said, oh, we wanted to check on that prescription you took. Could you bring it to the phone? dump the pills out, count the number of pills that are there, and then we compared that with the number of pills that ought to be there at that point in time. And we did the same thing two weeks later. Now we use these kind of fancy pill caps that automatically do this for us, but this is an older study. We also asked them their self-report. And you can see here that the more autonomously motivated, the more they were doing it because they really understood the value of the prescription, you can see how strongly correlated that was with their adherence. They're actually taking the medication accurately. In fact, when you look at the whole model of the physician's autonomy support, predicting the autonomous motivation, predicting the composite adherence to the medication, about 50% of the variance uh, in a medication is being uh, accounted for by this. Very important health outcomes associated with more autonomous motivation. So when you get higher autonomous motivation, you get greater persistence, better performance, and more enjoyment in acting. And so therefore it makes sense that it's something that we'd want to promote and figure out interventions that would help us uh, get people to be more autonomously motivated when they're engaged in extrinsically motivated behavior. And that brings us back to our bird's eye model here of supporting people's basic needs, treating them in an environment, a healthcare environment or a classroom environment uh, where they can feel satisfaction for needs, where they can feel support for autonomy. So for instance, I'm just going to give some examples here in a healthcare or a work or a uh, classroom environment, autonomy support takes the form of taking the other person's perspective, of encouraging self-initiation and reflection and choice on their part, of when they run into problems, of trying to understand the problems from the inside. And when you ask them to do something or give them a command, because it's very hard to autonomously do something without a good reason for doing it, you give them a rationale that makes sense to them and from their point of view. And you minimize the use of controlling rewards and language. And then in addition, when you want to provide a competent support environment, you give them tasks where the dominant experience is one of success rather than of struggle. And you scaffold that. You give them enough structure so that they can understand the task and, uh, and be able to succeed at it. And when you give them feedback, the feedback is really informational. It helps them do better the next time. You know, I challenge any of you to think of how much information is in a grade on a test. Oh, you got an 84 on that. That doesn't help you do better the next time. It only tells you how you did relative to everybody else. It's not informational feedback and it doesn't enhance competence. So you praise specific uh, accomplishments that they do. And something that we often forget in motivational environments is about relatedness support, which is if we want people to be positively motivated and to internalize and to adopt the values that we're putting forth, they need to feel some uh, connectedness with us. Children will not take in the values of 
adults to whom they don't feel attached or to whom they don't respect or who they feel don't respect them. They will take in the values of those groups that they'd like to be affiliated with and we hope as adults sometimes that's us. So relatedness environments convey respect for the individual. The person feels valued and significant when they face challenges. Someone approaches them with care and concern, not criticism and doubt. And warmth. One of the biggest predictors of motivation in classroom environments, but also in work environments is, my teacher likes me. The answer to the question, my teacher likes me. A child who feels their teacher likes them is much more motivated to do what that teacher says. And the same is true in a work environment, in an employee situation. I'm just going to show some examples of this. This is a cross-cultural study that uh, Valery Cherkov uh, and I did. We were comparing Russian and uh, American high school samples and their motivation. And Valari, who came from Russia, said, well, the techniques we use in Russia uh, typically are more authoritarian. They're going to be more controlling, both from parents and teachers. Uh, we used uh, what I think to be as good a psychometric approach as you could. We used means and covariate structure analysis to guarantee the cultural equivalence of our measures. And using those, we found that, as Valari predicted, that uh, on average, Russian parents and teachers were a bit more controlling than American parents. Um, but what I was interested in, what Valari was interested in, is not the mean level differences between the nations, but rather the correlations of these dimensions with the outcomes. And here you can see that uh, those are pretty much the same in both countries, which is to the extent that parents and teachers are externally regulating the, the uh, I mean, our, our autonomy supportive, the less the child is motivated by external regulation and the more they value school as something that they engage in. And this is true in both countries equally and you notice here that teacher autonomy support particularly related to intrinsic motivation in both countries because the teacher is the one that controls the interest value of what's going on in class. The parents control uh, and the teacher controls the value for school. You can see interjection, again, unreliably connected with outcomes. And then when you look at the mental health of these children, uh, for instance, their life satisfaction, these are high schoolers again, these are related positively in both countries to autonomy support, as is their self-esteem. Just, uh, I'm going to skip a couple things because I see that I'm running a little bit out of time. We've been doing some work in uh, sport environments uh, on the same matter and I just want to show this because this is some really interesting new work uh, that uh, really comes from uh, uh, the lead investigator here is Kimberly Bartholomew. She's at uh, Nottingham Trent University and uh, also involved in this was uh, Nikos Dumanis um, at uh, Birmingham and uh, they nicely let me get involved in some of this activity as well. And they've been measuring autonomy, support, and control in coaches, uh, as you can see over here, and then the degree to which the athletes are feeling. These are, this is a, a sample of uh, varied athletes from club level all the way up to elite, uh, how much their basic psychological needs are being satisfied, and also because in many coaching environments, not only are your needs for relatedness or autonomy not being satisfied, but they're can be actively thwarted. Coaches can be really controlling and take away your sense of choice or coaches can be really cold and harsh sometimes or humiliating and critical. So when you look at both sides of the need satisfaction and need thwarting, you can see that in these athletes need thwarting is uh, predictive of their burnout from the sport and their negative affect whereas need satisfaction is predicting their positive affect. As part of those studies we 
uh, did some observational things. So a subset of that uh, previous sample, uh, and these were tended to be the more elite athletes because they were more willing to put up with this procedure. Uh, before their training practices, uh, we uh, were able to get from them uh, this, uh, this indicator of stress, which is uh, SIAG. This is an uh, immunological protein that uh, is secreted uh, in the mouth, usually in response to acute stress. And you can see here that if they're in a coaching environment, which is need thwarting, just before practice, this is being secreted and uh, showing up here. So need thwarting being predictive of this stress protein being evident uh, in the athletes beforehand. So this is not just true in athletes, not just true in children, it's true in workers. Uh, even true in people who right now are really not in high reputation in our country, Wall Street brokers. We did a study of uh, 450 Wall Street brokers some time back. Uh, Paul Bard uh, 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 really organized this study and uh, got them to rate their uh, manager's autonomy, supportiveness, and their need satisfaction on the job. Then we accessed their work performance ev evaluations and uh, they did surveys on well-being. And you can see that even for Wall Street brokers, having a manager who's autonomy supportive predicts their need satisfaction and that relates to better work performance. In other words, they're taking more of our money and well-being in the workplace. We did an intervention with a Fortune 500 company uh, around the same, well actually it was just prior to this. In the Fortune 500 company, uh, the company had administered some of our measures and they had uh, found that there were strong correlations between managerial autonomy support and outcomes that were important in terms of their employees satisfaction on the job and feelings of security and other issues. And so they asked us to do an intervention and uh, this was uh, published in the uh, Journal of Applied Psychology. Uh, the intervention was one where uh, we did just a very brief intervention, really it was less than a day with the managers of work groups in various branches around the US and then the control groups were in other branches where we did no intervention and the intervention was successful in increasing autonomy supportive attitudes in the managers. Now the company said, we don't want you collecting the outcome data, we'll do that ourselves because, you know, why should they trust us? Um, and so they collected their own data and what they found was in those branches where we did the intervention, their employees had increased trust in the company, they had greater job satisfaction, and what was, I think, really impressive to the company is that people in those branches were more satisfied with their pay and benefits. If you work for a controlling manager in a, or a controlling boss, you think, why well, I'm working here, they, they darn well better pay me well. You're less satisfied with your current work and benefits. So department chairs, pay attention to this. You can pay your employees less if you're autonomy supportive. <laughs> Anyway, uh, we do health interventions and uh, uh, so just to, I'm going to only show one of these. Uh, we've now done uh, probably over, I think at this point we're closing in on our 4,000th smoker intervention in the city of Rochester. Um, and uh, we have a healthy living clinic as part of our, uh, psych our psychology and psychiatry department. And this is the very first study that we did. We had 1,000 patients come in. And we were interested in really low SES or low socioeconomic uh, uh, groups and people who didn't want to quit smoking. So the majority of our patients had no intention of quitting smoking when they came into our study. It was a smoker's health study. So they were coming in really to be, have a discussion of their health in general and their diet and other things. Um, 
And the point of the intervention was not to control them, not to make them quit smoking, but simply to have this. The critical endpoint of our intervention was to facilitate them making a clear choice about smoking. It's hard to do in an environment that's really evaluative or pressuring you in this particular direction. But as it turns out, even though most of our smokers didn't want to quit, when you could have an honest and non-evaluative and non-pressuring conversation with them, most of them would get to the, some part of it which they wanted to quit. And then if they did, we supplied some uh, basic tools for them to, uh, to do that. If not, there were other possibilities for them to engage in health-related practices. And these interventions, there's been a series of them because once you have a successful uh, randomized control trial, then your next intervention is to elaborate on it. Um, but basically, I just wanted to show the process model here, which is that autonomy later predicts willingness to quit and also uh, competence for quitting. But staff autonomy support enhances that. And that leads to a couple things. One is that autonomy leads people to take medications that are related to quitting smoking, like nicotine replacement drugs or uh, Shantex or other issues that help uh, cessation. And also autonomy leads people to want to develop the tools and competencies that also lead to cessation. And this is what uh, led to a success in this clinical trial. In fact, we just uh, are doing a meta-analysis now of 67 health interventions based on STT and you can see the practitioner styles of trying to motivate people across these 67 on this meta-analysis are predicting the motivational outcomes in patients, their willingness to change. So at this point in time, this is the self-determination model for health, there's been randomized control trials of, for smoking, for physical activity, for weight loss, for diabetes for medication adherence, for a healthy diet, even for gingivitis in terms of getting people to maintain flossing and other issues. These are all RCTs where there's been clearly established evidence that this model supports improved healthcare outcomes. So to summarize, people vary in their autonomy. Internalization is facilitated when we support people's basic psychological needs and the result is there's better persistence in their behavior. So I want to get to my, excuse me, my last topic for today, which is people's happiness. My throat's obviously not very happy at the moment, but um, what about happiness and fulfillment? Well, again, based on our bird's eye view, as we were doing all these studies on motivation, we would find continually that when people were in conditions that were both optimal for motivation, they also felt better as human beings. They had better well-being, better mental health. And so what we wanted to do is then See, how much is happiness and well-being really determined by living in environments where the people around you are supporting your autonomy, are helping you feel competent, and are letting you feel belongingness and connectedness. Now, we do studies really around the world, and this is just from one study, a Valari Cherkov study, just correlating our basic need satisfaction scales with overall subjective well-being, not necessarily my favorite measure of well-being, but a widely used one. You can see across quite varied uh, countries, similar kinds of correlations. And in fact, uh, um, Nick Marks and his group here in England at the New Economics Foundation use measures of autonomy, competence, and relatedness to look at differences in European well-being. And if you go to their website, you can kind of cursor over different countries and you can find out the mean levels of, say, uh, relatedness in the United Kingdom relative to other countries and how that relates to overall well-being. But 
Our theory says that whenever your needs are being satisfied, your well-being goes up, and whenever your needs are not being satisfied or they're being frustrated, they go down. And it's not just about differences between people, that some people are happier than others, but on a given day, in a given moment, when your needs are being satisfied, your well-being should go up. So um, probably the present moment isn't a good example, but if you think back on some moment today, uh, when you were in your work environment, if it was a time in which you were feeling connected with other people, your well-being would go up. And if it was a time when you were feeling rejected or alone, your well-being would go down. When your autonomy goes up, when you're feeling that sense of choice or you're feeling control, that's affecting your well-being from moment to moment. And so we do within-person studies using diary methods and experience sampling methods to look at this. And some astounding findings have come out from this. This is one of the early studies we did, and this is just a sample of undergraduates at the University of Rochester, you know, our sample, our sample of convenience. And when we first did the study, we found an amazing phenomenon. There was a weekly cyclicity effect. So this is positive affect across the week. You can see it's kind of low here, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and somewhere, <laughs> somewhere around Friday, it goes up and it's at its highest peak around Friday and Saturday, and it starts to shoot down on Sunday night. We did, we did not understand this at all. And uh, you can see the same thing here in negative affect, uh, which is that uh, negative emotion goes down over that same period of time. So we were really interested in that. But then if you look at their psychological need satisfaction across the week, we also find this amazing phenomenon, which is somewhere around Thursday afternoon all the way up into Friday and Saturday, their autonomy is going way up and their relatedness is going way up. This is not just because they're doing what's fun, it's because they're also getting more choice over how they schedule act their activities. They can be with the people that they want to be with, they can study in the groups that they want to. So it's not just a function of fun, it's a function of need satisfaction that's driving the differences in their affect across the week. So we took this to uh, a sample of American workers, and this is just uh, average American workers sample from across a lot of different jobs. This came out in 2010, I think. Uh, and in this sample, we were interested in, does this same uh, pattern hold true for American uh, regular workers? And we can see here that daily uh, need satisfaction is driving their positive affect on that day. Uh, autonomy, relatedness, competence, all related to positive affect. Uh, their absence, I mean the absence of negative affect. Their energy on days and on moments, actually, because we're sampling them three times a day in moments where these are uh, being satisfied, their vitality goes up, and physical symptoms, when they have low autonomy and low relatedness, they're having more physical symptoms, more headaches, more stomach aches, more back aches, more minor muscular pains, other kinds of issues. And surprisingly, they, like our undergraduates, show a very strong weekend effect. On weekends, people have less physical symptoms, they have uh, uh, more positive affect and less negative affect, but it's driven again by psychological need satisfaction, and particularly two. On weekends, people are feeling better because they have more autonomy and more relatedness. There is no competence effect. And then when we look at this, there are some people who don't show the weekend effect, and those are the people who in their workplace are not alienated. The people in a workplace where they experience autonomy and they're connected with their co-workers are not showing the weekend effect. It's really shown by uh, what in uh, previous times we might have called alienated labor which is all too pervasive in our culture. In other words, we're sampling regular American workers, and regular American workers during their work week are being deprived of feelings of autonomy and relatedness on the job, and they suffer psychologically as a result of it. So, 
we're all after success and life goals. I love this picture. I, I couldn't help but steal it off the web. Uh, and so we got interested about maybe some life goals actually lead us to be more need satisfying and other life goals actually detract from our need satisfaction. And it got us into the study of life goals and their relation to happiness. And the basic model was something like this, which is some life goals, because they're associated with more need satisfaction on a regular basis, lead to wellness. And there are some reciprocal effects that we expected in this. And really, um, part of this, we draw on some very ancient literature, which makes the same argument for us. Uh, we think of our theory as uh, associated with an Aristotelian perspective uh, called eudaimonia. And in the eudaimonic perspective, uh, Aristotle really thought that we were at our best and we had our greatest happiness when we were filling our intrinsic potentialities. And, you know, he was very uh, skeptical about most people's view about what would lead to happiness. He said, on the good life and happiness, to judge from their lives, most people, i.e. the most vulgar, he didn't really mince words, seem to suppose it should be pleasure and that's why they favor a life of consumption. He said, the people who are happy are those who've cultivated their character and their mind and they've kept the acquisition of external goods within moderate limits. But those who are unhappy, and I fear he's describing modern U.S. here, those who've managed to acquire more external goods than they can possibly use and they're lacking in goods of the soul. These would be the people who are unhappy. Well, this is an empirical question. Uh, he thought that you'd be happiest, you'd have the most fulfilled life to the extent that you were doing those things that were the virtuous exercise of human potentials or what's intrinsically valuable. But, you know, today, not everybody agrees with Aristotle. We have a lot of philosophers who disagree. And I just put a few of these philosophers up here on the board, my favorite being Donald Trump. Think big and kick ass, he says. Uh, and uh, he's not alone. There's a lot of other people who uh, would trumpet the same message that the, that the way to happiness is really through having, through possessions, that we can purchase happiness, that it's important to work and to consume, and that life is meaningful and people are successful to the extent that we have the right possessions, the right image, the right things going on around us. So it's an empirical question, however, uh, whether that's correct or not. Whether it's correct or not, though, young people are listening to this consumeristic message. This is the Pew Foundation's uh, data uh, from their 2000 survey of Gen Nexters. And Gen Nexters say, in, this is U.S. Gen Nexters, these are the people who are now uh, in their early 20s. Eight in ten of Gen Nexters say uh, getting rich is the most important or the second most important goal in life. Getting famous is also among their top goals. And more of them would like to be a celebrity's assistant than a Harvard professor or a federal judge, meaning they'd rather carry the bags of Brad Pitt into the hotel than to be a federal judge. I can get the Harvard professor part, but the federal judge is a good job. <laughs> so who's right? Is it Aristotle or Trump? And I, I want you to note that despite the differences in philosophy, they do have a similarity in hairstyle. <laughs> you notice that. So when we started investigating this, it was back in the early 90s, uh, Tim Kasser was a graduate student who worked with me. and He's written some really wonderful pieces on materialism has a book uh, called The High Price of Materialism. Uh, we just began by asking people, how important is financial success to you in your life? And also, how important are things like relationships and growth and community? We just looked at the relative strength within people about these different values, and then tried to predict who was happy or not. And 
we would use surveys uh, like our aspiration index about how important are these goals in your life. And one finding that we find is that people who are uh, interested in, oh I should go back to the result first, is that uh, those who, in our first studies we found that the people who placed uh, importance on financial success were more unhappy. And so that led us to do a little bit more on this. And we found that people who are into material success also tend to be really valuing of their image and their appearance. And they also want to be famous or they want to be popular. Whereas people who are interested in things like uh, community, giving to their community, are also interested in affiliation and relatedness with others, are also interested in personal growth. These things tend to hang together. And so we called this first factor intrinsic aspirations and the second factor extrinsic aspirations just because uh, those were words that were around. And then we would sample people, ask them about their aspirations, and then look at various mental health outcomes. This is a sample of urban adults. We went door to door in a pretty heterogeneous neighborhood and just asked people about their values and then got them to rate things. And what you see here is that people who highly valued intrinsic relative to extrinsic values more self-actualization, more energy and vitality, fewer symptoms of depression, and fewer of these common physical symptoms. And the opposite being true of people into fame, money, and looks. Same is true in undergraduate samples. In fact, we've been now doing worldwide studies and uh, Fred Gruze led a 15 country study where we looked at developing countries, underdeveloped countries, uh, countries east, countries west, countries north, and countries south in the 15 country sample. We found the same structure of values across these countries, which is the extrinsic values. They were using a circumplex model, uh, but popularity, image, financial success, conformity, all kind of lining up on one pole, and community, affiliation, self-acceptance, health, all lining up on another pole. You can see that there's other axes here that are unrelated to this. And across many different groups, we find the same result with uh, respect to well-being in Russians, Germans, Canadians, I mean even Canadians because I live near Canada and I know that they're very, very different than us. Uh, but even Canadian samples show the same pattern which is the more they're into extrinsic goals, the lower their well-being. Some studies have really tried to put us to the test by saying, well, if you were in business school, wouldn't it be the result that uh, extrinsic goals would be a benefit to you? But business students who highly value extrinsic goals use more substances, they're more likely to drink, they're more likely to use drugs, they're more depressive symptoms, more physical symptoms, a number of bad outcomes are associated with that. So across all these things, um, I'm running out of time so I'm not going to do the Iceland study, uh, but across many different samples the same result holds up. And then some people say, well, that's, what about if you attain the money? Doesn't that make you happy? Even if you're extrinsically motivated, maybe if you get it, you'll be happy. And I put up some happy people here uh, who've attained money. Uh, actually, some of these people probably are happy and some not because I think what I want to show you is that the attainment of a lot of extrinsic goods is pretty much uncorrelated or very weakly positively correlated with positive outcomes in life. Our first study on this is we looked at people uh, whose attainment of extrinsic goods and intrinsic goods uh, were compared and this is, this is well-being, subjective well-being. People who attained intrinsic uh, outcomes in their lives, who were given to their community or had good relationships, these are happy people, whether or not they're doing well extrinsically. But people who are not attaining intrinsic things are doing poorly, whether or not they're gaining extrinsically. And uh, 
This is, a, this is not my study. This is Ed Diener, uh, who's a very famous well-being researcher. They recently did uh, uh, global, using the Gallup organization uh, data, they did the most comprehensive global survey of subjective well-being that's yet been done. It samples more countries and more different populations and demographics than any. And I just want to show you the relationships they found between positive affect in daily life and negative affect in daily life and various indices associated with well-being. Here's the household income of a person. It's somewhat correlated with positive affect and somewhat negatively correlated with negative affect. Your relative income, how you're doing inside your own nation, showing the same, I think, moderate, well, weak pattern. This is national wealth, so if you live in a wealthier country, you're somewhat likely to be happier on a daily basis. Less negative affect. This is your basic physical needs. If your basic physical needs aren't being met, you have less positive affect and you have more negative affect. But these are basic psychological needs, the things we've been talking about, autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And how much more strongly at a zero order correlation they're related to this daily experience of people across the world. And luxury possessions not doing a very uh, robust job of predicting. So universally, basic psychological needs seem to be having an impact on people in terms of their day-to-day -day experience. And I'm not trying to minimize other kinds of issues that people face. And I'm not trying to say that wealth doesn't bring us a little bit of happiness, but a lot less than we often think particularly given how much work we put into it. And we've done some longitudinal studies to show the causal effects on this, but I don't have time to go into that. Recently, uh, Jeannie Tsai uh, did a, stu a study looking at 80 years of data on American college students, and she found a pretty sad fact, which is on entrance to college, American students tend to be more unhappy today than they were over 80 years, and it's pretty much a linear trend. So uh, here you see, for instance, depressive symptoms somewhat on the linear increase across time uh, over this 80-year period, or seven, it's a 70-year period, actually. And uh, more psychopathic deviance, meaning more antisocial behavior over time. And in their data, since this was a long-term data, they had demographics, religious data, family data, all kinds of things. And they were trying to see what accounts for this trend. And family changes, periods of war, economic recessions, changes in income, family structure, religion did not account for this trend. This is what they concluded accounted for this trend, which is that over time, American culture has shifted to an environment in which more and more young people experience poor mental health and psychopathology, possibly due to an increased focus on money, appearance, and status, rather than on community and close relationships. So that was the major account for the linear trend and why we're less happy today on entrance to college than those years ago. And Elderly people agree, this is not my data, this comes from Belgian samples. Uh, Martin van Stinkisch was the lead investigator on these. I'm just going to show one of these studies. But he's asking people in, their, in your life, I'm going to go to the next slide because this is the older sample. These are people whose mean age was 75 years old. In your life, what have you attained? And people who said that they had attained intrinsic goals at that point in life had higher well-being, less depressive symptoms, Using Erickson's measures of ego integrity, they had higher ego integrity, less despair, more acceptance of death, and less death anxiety. And people who gained extrinsic things, you can see that basically they're not positively related to the outcomes in old age. There's lots of reasons why, as we pursue material things in consumerism, it's not making us happy. It's burdensome. 
It takes away from the things that really matter in life. It takes away from our family time. It takes away from the things that are truly enjoyable to us. It may seem like, and my wife who's here can attest to this, when you buy a bigger house, that should make you happy. But when we bought a bigger house, that meant a bigger place to roof, a longer driveway to shovel in the wintertime, because uh, we live in Rochester, New York, where it snows a lot. Uh, more things to take care of, more things that are, were burdensome, not things that necessarily led to ongoing enjoyment, even though the house is you know, kind of cool. Um, I like it, but it, it crowds out other satisfying activities like the time we get to spend with each other taking a walk. And so it takes away from time, it adds to burdens of debt, and adds to greater stress in order to make all that money. And so given that, we should say, well, what do we do to make ourselves happy? And I just want people to remember that when we did these studies, there's the things on this side. The things that really make people happy are personal growth, relationships, contributed to your community, etc. You know, in personal growth, you're pursuing meaningful vocations, you're feeling more autonomous, you're doing things that are interesting and of value to you. Relationships are universally the thing that makes people, <coughs> that people think is the most important to their happiness, and it turns out to be so. When we invest in loving other people, this really makes us happy. This really leads to wellness, physical and mental. And when we give, and this has really been a surprising set of findings for us, when people give to other people, it satisfies all of their basic psychological needs. When I vo volunteer to go do something in my community, not only am I connecting with other people and feeling relatedness, but I'm also feeling a great deal of competence because I'm having an impact and feeling effective. And I'm doing it volitionally, so I'm feeling autonomous. And we've done lots of experiments to just to show how when a helper does volitionally help other people. They get more positive affect, more energy, and more self-esteem. And when you volitionally help other people, the recipient also gains in all those respects. Just one other thing about happiness is, and I'm not going to get into this deeply, serendipitous in all of our studies, because we're always beeping people and sampling their wellness, we try and find out where they're happy. And we kept finding that when people were outdoors, they were happier. They had more energy. And so we've been doing a whole series of experiments and findings on this. And uh, the main thing we find, uh, both uh, by doing experimental studies and inductions and just experience sampling, is that people have more energy when they're around natural things. Even having a window in your room leads to increased energy relative to not having a window. And my graduate students have reminded me of this on a regular basis because they have no windows uh, in their offices. Uh, that's why they are low in energy. Interestingly, when people are outside, if they've been exposed to natural environments, they give more. If you have people in a room with a lot of plants in it, or a room with no plants in it, and you ask them to donate money to others, they give more money when there are plants in the room. <laughs> so if you run an NPO, you should have plants in the room. Um, anyway, nature is free. And sadly, as we consume, we're using up nature. We're destroying nature everywhere we go. We're using it up. And so, we have many reasons besides just happiness for, I think, reevaluating our materialistic lifestyles. We have an earth that can't sustain a level of greed and consumption that we're currently putting to it. Well, I've talked a lot about motivation and happiness tonight, and I've hoped I've made some sense. I, you've been a very patient audience. You've had to listen to my accent uh, all evening long. Um, I just want to say, you know, I hope that what I've been able to do is say a little bit about what the data shows about what's really meaningful to us. 
And my wife and I are both clinicians. We've had the privilege, I think, of being able to be with a lot of people in very harsh circumstance. But as people grow older, as they're nearing the end of life, I've never heard somebody say, gee, I wish I spent more time consuming. I wish I spent more time watching TV. I wish I spent more time in built environments where I was stressed and making money. They always say, I wish I had spent more time with family. I wish I had spent more time outdoors. I wish I had spent more time giving to others, pursuing the things that really interest me. When we think about what's really meaningful, then none of this data is very surprising. And that's why I kind of retitled my thing, The Well-Known Secrets of Happiness, because these are things that we, we all know. It's just so easy to forget. So when it comes to happiness, uh, there's some ancient tr uh, truths that do hold true. And if there was a debate between Trump and Aristotle, I think Aristotle's got it all over. Donald. Uh, cheers. Uh, and thank you to Bath for being a really great home to my wife and I for the last uh, several months and for several months to come. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for a fascinating talk, Rich, on um, and providing a, a great overview of self-determination theory and a number of applications across a number of life domains. Rich is now going to take some questions from the audience um, as they relate to motivation and, this, um, and the application. Um, we've got two microphones um, called Rover 1 and Rover 2. And knowing how bad I am at names, Sarah even arranged for a friend called Sarah. So we've got two Sarahs, and if you've got a question, if you put your hand up, then we'll bring a microphone. Thank you. There's a question right here in the center. Uh, I'm of an age where my retention isn't great, and I'm not an academic, but if I could just say, refer back to your uh, simplex model around, I think it was uh, autonomy versus control, and you stated that this doesn't apply for drug addiction. Yeah. I'm sorry, I work in that field in terms of sub substance misuse addiction. I'm very interested in the motivational uh, models that will work best. Can you, would you, I'm sorry, you chose not to say it for some reason, but it, can, can you yeah, simply explain that? Because now you ask me. <laughs> um, the, the reason the simplex doesn't work in the sphere of drug addiction, we've done, I've done, uh, been involved in some studies in both methadone uh, clinics and also in alcohol clinics. And in those clinics, we don't get a typical simplex model. What we typically get is what we would call an external regulation model, which is associated with poor motivation for treatment. And then we get what we call an internal, where both introjection and identification load together, and both are positively predicting outcomes. And the reason is, is that for most people who are going to make a change, who've been addicted to drugs, they've pretty much bottomed out. And they also know, they do feel existentially and personally guilty about what they've been engaged in. They know they should change, and that's highly correlated with the value for change. And so we don't get a simplex model, but we do get a very strong set of patterns where unless you have that internal motivation, you're not likely to have a successful transition uh, through the clinic. Uh, and also in drug clinics, some external incentives seem to weigh less negatively than they do in some other settings. And so what we typically find is that 
internal motivation, both introjected and identified, is a necessary condition for positive change. And that's a little bit different than the pattern in other spheres. Thank you. There were a couple of your slides that I'd really like to use uh, with the workforce that we're, we're that working in the field. Sure. Uh, uh, that I think would be very helpful for them to understand some of those uh, other factors. Will we have access to them? Sure. Um, you know, there's, that website, by the way, has almost all the studies that I would have talked about either available or gives you the information on where you can get them. And then uh, I'd be, I don't know, uh, can we make the slide set available to the audience here tonight? We can have a PDF of that. Uh, if we can find a way, I, it's fine with me that uh, the slide set would be available to the audience here this evening. Okay, sure. Up here, way up in the corner here. Is this rover one or two, Sarah? <laughs> you know, on Mars, I think it was rover two that broke down, wasn't it, on Mars? It was, uh... <laughs> uh, yeah, I just to ask with regards to sort of like, talked a lot about the money, but also um, the choices that you sort of need to have autonomy. In you know UK, US, and other sort of you know pretty wealthy countries, can you have the choice and the autonomy without a certain amount of cash available? Mm. That, well, that cycle. You make you make a really uh, excellent point, and I, I want to contrast uh, the US and the UK in a couple respects here, and also really Europe and the US in one respect. In the US, we have a very low safety net. If you lose, if you quit your job or you lose your job. There's not much support for you. There's a very short-term support. There's no health care. So most people don't have a choice about leaving their job. They must stay in their job. Where you have a higher safety net, you do have more choice about your vocation. So if you're in a place where you're experiencing no autonomy, where you're experiencing a lot of alienation, at least you have some degree of mobility to be able to move away without losing all of your basic uh, health care. Now your question goes a little bit beyond that, which is, does cash in some way give us more choices? And what I want to argue is that it does to a small extent. You saw that there's a small positive correlation with the more you have, the more uh, positive affect you might have. It's just that uh, I think we overestimate how much happiness those things are going to bring. And so just as an example of that, maybe I think you know, if I had more cash, I could really have a great car instead of the, what do I drive? Uh, uh, whatever it is I drive. <laughs> That's how bad a car it is. Uh, but uh, I could really have a great car. So I could work a lot of hours to get that new car. And the amount of effort and sweat and alienation or struggle that it might be to get those, that money for that new car it's not that it provides me no satisfaction the first couple times I get in that car and cruise down the street, I'm pretty happy about it. It's that the half-life of that happiness, it dips really fast. Whereas the cost I've already paid, or the debt that I've incurred, if it's debt, is also going to burden me over a long period of time. So I think we often have a bad metric when we think about choice, money, and consumption. The nice thing that uh, money can do, though, is it can give you some uh, freedom, I guess you can say, to do some things that really are of interest, to, to participate in the groups you want to participate in, to take more vacations, which actually might lead to more contact with nature or 
uh, connection with relatives. So I don't want to say that money doesn't do anything for us. I just want to say we way overestimate what it provides. And often we use a very bad metric when we're thinking about that in terms of the outcome of happiness. Rover, I guess we need Rover 1 over here. Oh. <laughs> I probably Thank didn't answer your question. <laughs> Thank you. About four or five years ago, I did a, an MA in education management, not here, I hasten to add, but somewhere else. And I was conscious when I did that that there had been very, very little research into the factors which motivate teachers to join the teaching profession in the first mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. And on a day in which we've got large numbers of, of, of you know, people out who are in the public sector on strike, it's a slightly politically sensitive question, but I'm just intrigued to know whether there has ever been any substantial research undertaken into whether those who tend to gravitate into public sector type jobs are more by nature intrinsically motivated than extrinsically motivated. And the reason I ask that is because at various points in this country we've toyed with the idea of performance related pay in the public sector and whether this would really have any impact on performance or not, or whether it's actually a complete irrelevance because it's not that sort of factor which fundamentally motivates people to go into careers like teaching, nursing, medicine, and, and so on. Um, <clears throat> those of you who'd like to sleep tonight, you should leave now because I have a long answer to this question. <laughs> um, first of all, there have been studies on uh, the motive, the, the goal structure of teachers compared to some other things. Like we did a study one time comparing uh, uh, public school sector teachers with people entering business schools, for instance, and showed, of course, that they had much higher intrinsic goals. Uh, they also have higher intrinsic goals than those people entering law schools, for instance. Uh, a sad thing, though, about uh, both business and law schools is people become more extrinsically oriented over the time that they're in those training programs and then become more unhappy also as a result of that. The, the issue about uh, Teachers, and, at least in, and I'm going to mostly talk about our country, although I think we stole some bad ideas from your country first. And it has to do with how we're trying to now motivate performance in classrooms by using incentive systems for teachers. And we have a, a system in the United States that we call high-stakes testing, high-stakes standardized testing. So actually, I'm a psychologist. I, I, I like testing because I like knowing outcomes. The problem with testing is not the fact of looking at how people are achieving in schools, it's putting rewards and punishments behind the outcomes because it drives all the wrong behaviors in schools. So once you put high stakes behind standardized test outcomes, what the data shows is it leads to bad classroom practice. So if I'm going to reward or punish teachers on the basis of the test scores of their children, that's going to lead teachers to start to do things like teach to the test directly try and get the scores raised by teaching those things that I know will be on the test, and that's going to lead to less uh, enriching educational activities that might be hands-on activities or things that might intrinsically motivate children. And oddly, it has no positive effect. We've now had a long-term social experiment where high-stakes standardized testing is not only improved, has not only not improved achievement outcomes, but when, well, it does on the local test. But when you look at any other indice of achievement, there's no evidence that it's enhanced educational outcomes in our country at all. In fact, on many indices, it has uh, taken those away. 
And the other thing is it's created a drain on those teachers who are really motivated to uh, enrich kids' lives and to stimulate learning in others because there's a brain drain to private schools where we don't have high-stakes standardized testing in our country or out of the profession. And it has led to, I think, alienation in many different ways. And, you know, the reward structure, using reward structures to try and promote learning uh, has been well tested in laboratories and in field studies, but it continues to go on because it's an intuitively appealing idea to people. When we use words like accountability and performance pay, we think we're somehow going to grab control over outcomes and produce those really good things, but the data doesn't hold that up. Uh, Bloomberg, our mayor of New York, recently instigated a big program where he was rewarding, this was uh, designed by a Harvard economist, I have nothing against Harvard economists, but they don't read the literature. And the, what, the, what they did um, was they designed a reward system where they would reward children for getting uh, more uh, achievement related outcomes. And it was a massive failure. They spent millions of dollars and the, o the only kinds of outcomes that they showed improvements on were the things that were really easy for kids to do. So when they gave them $50 to get a library card, they went and got a library card. They didn't read more books, but you know, New York City kids are smart. You know, I got a library, I get a card, I get 50 bucks. But that didn't encourage reading. And it didn't improve achievement outcomes in schools. In fact, the only place in the, they, they really tried to milk that data to find some positive outcomes. And the only place there were any positive outcomes in any of that data was for the kids who were already really highly achieving. Because they could figure out how to you know, get a few more bucks for whatever it is that they did. So when you did something that was really concrete, rewards could control that behavior, but it couldn't promote learning. And similarly, when we've looked at performance pay for teachers, there's those experiments have been tried over and over again in the United States, and there's no uh, pervasive data supporting their efficacy. Nonetheless, our politicians continue, and this is US politicians, continue to argue for these things because the public, when they hear that word accountability, and when they feel like they're going to get control over something, it sounds really appealing. And since we were talking about drug dependency programs before, this also happens in the sphere of that. The most ineffective programs in our country are the ones that are like scared straight programs and uh, programs where you punish people for uh, um, drug use and uh, reward people for getting out. Those are the least effective programs, but they're most politically supported. So we have these antiquated ideas about rewarding and punishing behaviors as if it's going to drive outcomes. And so what I want to focus on here is uh, when I think about the use of rewards and I think about what B.F. Skinner would have said, B.F. Skinner would roll over in his grave if he thought we were rewarding outcomes. Because B.F. Skinner never advocated the use of rewards for outcomes. He advocated the use of rewards for behaviors that we valued. When you reward an outcome, what you're basically doing is reinforcing any behavior that leads to the end. We call this the Enron effect after one of our famous corporations. When you reward corporate officers for raising the stock, they'll raise the stock even at the price of their own company's health and their employees' well-being. When you reward people for short-term outcomes, they'll do what they need to do to get rewards no matter what the cost is. Rewarding outcomes is a terrible strategy for improving anything in our society. Rewarding behavior sometimes can be an efficacious thing. So if you were going to reward teachers, if you're going to do that, it should be for good classroom practice. The outcomes will follow 
from good classroom practice, but when you reward outcomes, what you're doing is reinforcing bad classroom practice. And I could go on and on about this, so thank you for your question. Um, there's a couple of questions here. Ro Rover 2 is coming. Thanks, Sarah. Yes, thanks. Just in the introduction, it was mentioned that you're a member of the American Education Research Association. And I'm really curious because in April, um, they're going to try and see how they fulfill their mission, which is not only to advance knowledge and to promote scholarly inquiry, it's yeah. also to engage in improving practice and serving the public good. Yeah. And in the first half, uh, the new president has said, look, we've done that rather well. And tonight, I just feel the scholarly inquiry is there at a very high level, and so is advancing knowledge. But what I'd just like to hear is, how would you describe your own motivations this evening? Whether you could connect them to that second half of the mission. My own motivation? Yeah. To improve practice and serve the public good. So it's, I'm just curious how you describe your own motivations in the here and now. Well, I'm always afraid to go to my own motivations because they're often very base. <laughs> but, uh, but that's not really true. I think one of the reasons I got into being a researcher in the first place, I really had no intention of becoming a researcher. And it really was those early studies in classroom environments where I thought showing about what good practice can do and how powerful it can be in the lives of children is really important. In my own work, I've been, for instance, on this issue of high-stakes standardized testing, uh, as my wife knows, I've spent a lot of time lobbying, being involved in political discourse, going to our local capital to try and convince our legislators to show them the evidence about the practices that are backfiring in our schools. We've been involved, I've been a consultant for a lot of progressive schools that somehow find a, a way to exist within our public school system despite the rain that's falling on them. I often say to principals and teachers, there's a bad atmosphere out there. There's a storm happening around us, and the best we can do is shelter the children who we are caring for, who are right underneath us. And I, in my work, I'm trying to support those people who are doing that and remind them about really what's the most important thing they can be doing in the classroom with kids, <coughs> relating to them, helping them feel belonging and uh, cared for, helping them feel competent in the things that they do. So it's really trying to inform practice in a way that I think is to the benefit of children. That would be true in all the spheres of life where we operate, whether I'm talking about health outcomes or those things. And I'm not trying to sound like a saint around those things. I don't really feel that way. I'm an academic. I'm also interested in the basic science of these things and how it is that the design of the human psyche evolved to be such that we have these basic psychological needs. So, you know, I'm some mixture of what I would call curiosity and interest, and then also of wanting to put that on the streets and into practice. And so my own motives are kind of mixed around that, and that's why when a question like this one gets asked, I fear I lose my scientific mind, and I start to get over into my political mind, and I get very angry about what I see going on in public policy with respect to uh, the safety net for our workers or for the the uh, practices that our politicians are advocating for our public schools. Um, so, you know, I don't know, I have mixed motives and uh, they're, they're, you know, I'm a bad example. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question. Yes, okay. Can we just add, you see, your passion comes through this evening. 
And I would say also that you actually love what you do. Now, if we're thinking about motivation, it's just to tap in. You also mentioned caring. And your whole body, it feels to me, is expressing that passion for those values. And I'm just curious in terms of motivation. It, it seems that we lose those. Um, and we actually lose such a lot in the world. And I, I was just curious whether you'd ever videotape yourself and then reviewed. Well, if you, if you had videotaped me in the hour before this talk, I was thinking, I don't want to be here. I don't want to give this. I'm so nervous about it. And it's not just because my wife showed up. <laughs> but um, thank you very much. I appreciate the comment. Yeah, my question was just about the education and rewards. Where you have a, a practice of rewarding children in, a, in school and that, that practice ceases, you were saying in, the research shows that the, their mot intrinsic motivation goes down. But I was wondering how long is it before, or is it recoverable, or how long is it before it actually comes back? You know, it, that's a, it's a really great question because one of the first findings that we showed to me kind of speaks to the resilience of children. So when we were tracking uh, teacher styles and their impact on kids in longitudinal studies, we'd find that a teacher within the first four or five weeks of the school year would be having an impact on kids such that a very controlling teaching atmosphere would lead kids to be losing their motivation and a very autonomy supportive one would raise it. But then we were tracking kids the next year, so those same kids the next year, and we would find that kids who had been very uh, demotivated the year before, if they got into a supportive environment, their motivation would go up. Now, there are some issues in that, though, which is that, um, uh, for instance, I, I've worked in some progressive schools in our public school system. And we had one uh, that I've been on the board of for a long time. It's called the School Without Walls. And it's a very free school, high school, within our uh, public school system. But, uh, managed by some very brave principals and teachers. But they had a lot of trouble when kids would make a transition into that school because they're coming from very controlling environments and they would get into a free environment and when a kid has been controlled and they've been under that other system all the time and they get into a free environment, they were like, oh, I don't have to go to class? Great. They were off into the street. Oh, I don't, nobody's gonna hold me accountable for anything I do here? Good, I'm not going to do anything. And what would happen is it would take a while for kids to get the sense of what that school was about and to gain responsibility. And by the time some of them would do it, it would be too late. It would take too long to make that transition. So uh, what we were doing was we designed a, um, what we called a, a kind of graduated structure for the transition into that school, which is, it wasn't really controlling, but it was where that every week somebody met with every child and had a conversation about what had they done that week and how was that consistent with their moving, moving toward graduation from that school. And it wasn't really, there was no punishments or rewards, but it was to track, monitor, converse, give a rationale, and engage, an adult engaging with a child so that they wouldn't get lost as they made that transition. And then as they could find their own uh, sense of responsibility in the freer context, then they would be gradually freed up from that structure. I typically think that structure is a good thing. And we have lots of research on that within SDT. I haven't 
shown any of it tonight, but John Marshall Reeve is uh, one of our uh, investigators in STT who's done beautiful work to show structure is mostly uh, positively related to motivation, especially if it's done autonomously. So you can structure kids controllingly and you can structure them autonomously. Autonomous structure turns out to be really helpful to kids in schools. Uh, no structure is a problem. So having no uh, guidelines, no sense of what the goals are, no conversations about rationale, uh, a permissive environment in schools I don't think is either autonomy supportive or competence supportive. It's just not supportive. So what I advocate in, in, as an educational policy is a high degree of structure with a high degree of autonomy support. And I think that's the most successful model of, uh, of a progressive school. Um, I don't know if that fully answers your question. Thank you. One more question. Oh, there's, uh, there's one up in the back. Martin promised me a reward of dinner after this talk. <laughs> so. um, in your research, have you explored um, alternative communities and alternative um, w within, um, sort of, I suppose, um, for example, I don't know, Amish communities or communities where people have chosen um, to live very uh, counterculturally in terms of uh, finance and this kind of thing, and education as well? Um, so. The answer to that is, um, is a mixed answer. First of all, those communities have been studied. Uh, Ed Diener, who does work on subjective well-being, uh, was looking at different subcultures within the US. And this is not my work. But he showed that the Amish culture, for instance, was one of the happiest cultures in the US, subcultures within the US. Within our own group, the person who's been mainly responsible for doing that work has been Tim Kasser, who I started that intrinsic and extrinsic goal work with. And he looked at, uh, there's, a, there's a movement within the United States that's called voluntary simplicity. And in voluntary simplicity, this means that you're moving toward a more simple lifestyle of less consumerism and less work uh, as well, simplifying life and doing it because of volition rather than because you know, you've been fired from your job and you have to cut down, but you're actually volitionally moving in the direction of living a simpler life. So they, he and Kirk Brown, uh, another colleague of mine, uh, both studied uh, a sample of voluntary simplicity people and compared it with uh, a, just a nationally representative sample of others who were not in that. And they found in the longitudinal study that people who moved into voluntary simplicity gained happiness as a result of that over the time, in fact, to quite a high degree. So it was pretty clear. And uh, their major account of it is what uh, they call time affluence. And so if you think of something that we're deprived of in our current culture because of our desire for more and more and more things is that we don't have time. We're busy all the time. People who move to voluntary simplicity get time. And time is the one non-renewable source that we have. Because everything else we can get back, but we can never get back time. And the voluntary simplicity people, the biggest factor accounting for their increased happiness was their increased time affluence. And so it seems to be that if we could move toward a simpler life, it would be good for the earth for sure, but it's also good for us because we have more time. And when we have more time, we tend to put it to the things that truly make us happy that we discussed here earlier. 
Um, thanks very much for. Thank you again, Richard, and talking about activities that bring short-term ha happiness, I've been assured that there are glasses of wine available, so <laughs> thank you again. Well, that's the other basic need. <laughs> so I survived.